0: Welcome to Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry will lead into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. I am really excited to welcome you to the first episode of this season. This year, 2024, I'm focusing on two key ingredients to energy leadership. The first is having a vision, a vision that is so compelling that your stakeholders are engaged and find it Incredible, even your skeptical stakeholders. And the second piece is executing on the nuts and bolts of that vision. So that's gonna include things like how your company will execute on the difficult details of running a base business while also launching and building new sustainability ventures. So it's wonderful to have Arjun Murthy as my first guest today, because he can really speak to both of these things from such an interesting lens. His whole career has been in and around the energy industry. As you'll hear, he just has a fresh take, just a really different perspective on everything. So, Arjun is a partner of Veriton, and he's the author of the Super Spiked Newsletter, which I am a mega fan of. He spent most of his career on Wall Street, and he talks about that in our episode today. He was at Goldman Sachs. He retired as a partner in 2014. And then recently, he unretired to join Veriton an energy research strategy and investing firm. Uh, many of you will know them as the hosts of the COBT Tuesday podcast, which I'm also a big fan of. Arjun serves as a director on the board for ConocoPhillips and he holds other additional leadership positions in and around energy and the industry. You can learn more about Arjun in our show notes. I just am delighted to share my conversation with Arjun Murthy. Arjun Murthy, Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast.
1: Tisha, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, one of the joys of getting to host a podcast is that you get to have conversations with people that you admire. And Arjun, I love your brain. I'm so glad your brain is on this podcast. I can't wait to test some of my ideas for 2024. And so I'm just, I'm just going to jump right in.
1: Thank you so much.
0: So, Our theme for this season, this is the first episode of this season, revolves around the need for oil and gas companies to articulate a vision for the future and take steps towards that vision. And you put out a 2024 kickoff with big themes where you highlight- the lack of, quote, positively articulated outlooks from many traditional energy companies. And this makes sense, right? They've been in a defensive posture. There's a lot of angst and critiques around the oil and gas industry out there. I would love to hear your perspective on why don't we see positive outlooks coming from oil and gas companies? And why do you think companies need to articulate positive visions of the future?
1: Well, thank you, Tish. I think you've already re- revealed if people can't see it in my background. My career was as an equity research analyst, and it is the perspective that I try and bring to this whole conversation. It's less and we'll get into it later about what is the ideology. It is about trying to make the right call for the outlook that we see going forward, whatever that may be. And when it comes to these companies, it was a really tough decade last decade. Shale dominated. That was a good thing. But we obviously ended up with too much shale oil growth, really poor profitability, the sector waiting in the S&P 500, which is kind of a market metric, collapsed, meaning investors fled energy, especially US energy, and went to other sectors. Balance sheets were terrible. And they spent the last three years post-COVID fixing the balance sheet. Oil and gas prices have been a little better, especially oil. The profitability is much improved. And investors are telling these companies, don't waste my money. You guys drilled way too much last decade. And again, this isn't some ideological view of should we have more oil and gas or less oil and gas. It was just from an analyst or an investor's perspective, we know profitability was poor last year. We know you overdrilled. Don't you dare do it again. And the issue today is that was needed. It was needed in 2020, 21, and 22. And with that, we got a pretty big rebound in the sector. Now, they've now, over the last year, consolidated a bit. The stocks have gone sideways. Other stocks in the market have done better. And I think we're at a point where, let's just call it the fix-yourself trade, if you will, is over. The balance sheets are better the profitability is better. Now it's a question of how do you fit in to the world going forward? And this is this issue of, do you actually have a positive view or are you defensive? And I find by and large, too many of these companies are way too defensive right now.
0: Yeah, can you speak a little bit because the there there's another interpretation of the oil and gas defensive posture, of course, which is by people who I would say are, you know, climate centric or climate hawks view where they say oil and gas companies know it's the end. Like they know it's the end. And they, they recast all of that narrative around the end of these companies. And one of the things that you articulate, I think really well is, is you pose a question, like, do we believe in our future as the oil and gas industry? Do companies narrate their role in the future. Can you talk a little bit about that double track where there's the the reality of financial pressures? There's a whole huge section of the world that says we're done with oil and gas. How do companies believe in their future and narrate that belief?
1: One of the great ironies, Tisha, is I think there's a lot of alignment between what investors are saying they want today and the environmental, and in particular, the climate portion, of the environmental movement. If you're a climate person here, you can say, keep it in the ground. We don't want any more oil and gas. We'll figure out the demand side, but just stop producing. Frankly, investors are saying the same thing. And they're saying it because, again, you guys overdrilled last decade. The profitability is poor. Don't waste my money again. And I'll say, there is a reasonable debate on what is the trajectory for energy demand going forward. And of that demand... How much is going to be oil and gas, how much will be coal, how much will be nuclear and renewables and so forth. It's a a reasonable debate. And if you're coming off a really long period where the profits were poor, even if it's been better the last two years, and if you're now in an environment where, hey, if you're a generalist portfolio manager, maybe you don't have some strong view about how quickly climate concerns should be taken into account, but you are seeing, hey, Tesla's a real company, electric vehicle sales are growing, so is BYD. Maybe these climate concerns are something where policy is going to make a difference and demand. And so there's a lot of debate on when is it going to be peak demand. My own personal view and all the work we do says that there are the lucky one billion of us that live in the US, Europe, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Japan who use a disproportionate amount of the world's energy. And there's the other 7 billion people at which 5 billion people are between China, India, and the rest of Southeast Asia who are using a fraction of the energy we do. And every time an economy goes up that economic S-curve, you go from poor to middle income to rich, you use more energy, and you overwhelmingly use all forms of energy. In this case, crude oil, gas, and coal are 80% of the mix, and they are likely to continue to be a major portion of the mix going forward. And so it is that long-term development in the rest of the world that makes me believe, I don't know how anyone can predict what decade, let alone year, oil or gas demand are going to peak, especially when we don't know what are the technologies that will replace these uh, historic energy uses that don't require a lot of subsidy. And we can get into it a little bit more, but two quick examples. Everyone says solar is cheap. We know that's true for a portion of the mix. There's obviously issues with intermittency and battery, but why is it that solar still is a 30% ITC if it is so cheap? What is the prospect for transmission lines getting built out? What is the ramp up of battery storage, especially long duration? I mean, there's just so many questions about the replacements. And even with electric vehicles, it is not a ubiquitous solution for all. And of course, gasoline is only a quarter of the oil demand barrel anyway. And so the point would simply be, we don't know yet, despite being told otherwise, what are the technologies that are going to, for global consumers, replace the benefits of oil and gas? at an affordable cost, and that's geopolitically secure, these are the questions that I think still exist.
0: There's so much in there I want to pull on. So I'm going to pick one. I'm just going to start with your first point. And that is this idea that the climate narrative, keep it in the ground, and the investor narrative, like be responsible stewards of your investment capital, have aligned. And I think that I think that's so interesting to say, this is where they work. And yet it does matter the why, the why you would keep it in the ground, because I think there's a a misunderstanding or a misperception broadly in society that we don't need oil and gas anymore. And I'm wondering what you think the posture of oil and gas companies should be about their role in addressing climate or in decarbonizing, because I think you and I are broadly aligned about the need for oil and gas for decades to come. But where we might diverge is I take a more sort of empathetic approach to the people who think we're done with oil and gas to say like let's speak their language, let's align with their aspirations, and then let's work within that framework. And I think you maybe take a more bullish, let's explain the importance of oil and gas. I don't know if that's true. I'm curious, what do you what how do you think oil and gas companies should narrate their role among stakeholders who don't think they have a, a role?
1: Well let me start with this issue of keep it in the ground and the investor and climate folks alignment there. I think first of all, I don't think there's anyone who's in favor of drill baby drill. There's not an investor that that, that wants that to happen. We saw what happened when you did drill baby drill. Uh, you had way too much supply and way too little profitability. And so it's kind of a catchy slogan. I enjoy it as a slogan. Maybe optimize baby optimize might be the better sort of path forward. Never mind geologic maturity and the fact that you know a bunch of these shale plays are in their later innings to begin with. It, it's not even pragmatic. On the other hand. When people talk about keep it in the ground, stop fossil fuels, et cetera, et cetera, this seems to be uniquely targeted at American, Canadian, and Western European companies. And so my comment always to the environmental community is, can you please just start with the Russian oil companies or Saudi or UAE or Iran or Iraq? And I'm not trying to pass judgment on any one of those countries. As an American, clearly, I would personally be less in favor of most of those countries in terms of producing more oil and gas if it comes at the expense. Of our companies doing. It. so i don't I don't understand why it's only directed at our company. Secondly, I think there is this belief in the climate community that if you stop producing it, people won't demand it. They equate it to tobacco or these other things where we definitely can live without tobacco. No one has to smoke. That is not true for energy. It is part and parcel to everything we do. I know you know this, Tisha. It's not just driving our cars. It is the clothes we wear. It is any perfume or makeup. It is plastic bags and plastic gloves for hospitals. It is this Zoom conference call we have right now is entirely dependent on energy. And 80% of that's gonna be oil, gas, and coal. And so it is critical to what we do. I, I think in terms of the role for traditional energy companies, I would say we should favor American energy and Canadian energy. And I put them together. This we can mandate. We can have strict environmental rules that say zero methane or near zero methane. You can hold our companies accountable, but it's domestic jobs, it's domestic tax revenues, and most importantly, the rest of the world needs it. So if we do not provide it here, if you're India, if you're China, it will be coming from the Middle East or Russia. The other point I would simply make, though, is what I find a little bit perplexing is there is a need for new energies. Because if you're a country that does not have robust oil or natural gas resources, you are going to try and motivate electric vehicles and a whole bunch of new technologies because you're not going to want to be dependent on imported crude oil from either Saudi, Iran, or Russia, or for that matter, the US or Canada. And same thing with natural gas. It's also leading to more coal. Uh, that is an inexpensive jobs and tax producing resource that a lot of the developing world has. So these issues are far more complex than simply we're either in a climate crisis or it's being overhyped. Um, and I think in the US political context, both the left, but also the right. I, I, I say and I'll try and be as polite as possible. Both sides stink. Uh, it's about as polite as a way as I can say it. Um drill baby drill is no more effective or pragmatic of a solution than is just keep it in the ground
0: again, so many things for us to pull on here. So I'm gonna try to pick one what I what there's so many things you said that people can love and so many things people can hate because you're pragmatic. You have a global perspective. You're not ideological. And we strive to be all those things at Adam and Teen too. And we want to help companies be effective. You play a lot of roles as an advisor, as a board member, as an executive in your own firm. What are things you have found to be effective in building bridges, in narrating a vision of the future with those who are skeptical or even hostile to the oil and gas industry?
1: I think there's some who are hostile where you just have to accept that that's their point of view. And my comment is usually around these lines where while I am, no one's going to think I'm a diehard environmentalist, I think they're an important part of the conversation. I'm grateful that we don't dump chemicals into rivers anymore. I'm grateful that we don't have smog here in America. There's been a lot of benefits that we accrue from the environmental movement. Um, The question is, are they be-all and end-all? So the, the idea that you're going to drive economic or energy policy based on a subset of people with particularly strong views on a subject, which again might be too much CO2 emissions into the atmosphere, and to then make that the entirety of your policy I, I think is, is not the way the world is going to work. In part, if you're a country and you have hundreds of millions or billions of people to deal with, they have to have energy there is a hierarchy of needs here even as americans if our energy is off for 5 seconds we can't live without it right we get backup generators we can't stand when our cell phones not charged we have to drive imagine the rest of the world that is using a fraction of what we do you don't even care what you pay for it you you will always want energy for you don't care what country it comes from now the second order is i think geopolitical security and this is where new energies i don't like the term clean Nothing is clean or dirty, nothing is brown or green, they all have different attributes, but the new energies, all of them, if you're China, if you're India, you are motivated to not be dependent on imported oil. So again, I think we're gonna be using basically everything to try and satisfy this hierarchy of needs. It is absolutely true, if you're richer, you have better environmental performance. If you look at a map of clean air, It's perfectly correlated with richness, which, by the way, is perfectly correlated with fossil fuel use. It's not that fossil fuels make the air cleaner. They do not. It is the richness of your country allows environmental protections to come in. There should be an alignment there. When we only focus on what a small group of people, and they are small, that truly are diehard about this, in the context of 8 billion people on Earth, I think you run into policy problems. As far as the energy companies, my comment is always, you have to do what you do best. And so I I think oil and gas companies, especially in America and Canada, are good at producing oil and gas. So if there's an environmental responsibility, it's near zero methane by some next several years type objective. It is ultimately a zero scope one, as well as hydrocarbon spills and a whole bunch of other different environmental considerations. But the goal is to produce low cost oil and gas that the world wants. There are very few examples of yesterday's technology leader being tomorrow's winner. Imagine if Reed Hastings of Netflix had sold to Blockbuster for $1 billion, which at the time would have been a heck of a lot of money for Mr. Hastings or Netflix's early days. Would we have ubiquitous streaming, right? Remember when Walmart first took away the small convenience stores and hardware stores? They've now displaced by Amazon. It is the nature of capitalism and markets to have new winners to deal with tomorrow's technologies. Tesla's a great example. It is not GM, Ford. BMW or Mercedes that cracked the code with compliance cars that no one wanted to drive. Hey, let's make a cool car. I drive a Tesla. I've driven a Tesla for eight years now because I like one-pedal driving. I prefer charging at home. I like the iPad and the simplified UI. I like all of it, but not everybody does. It's not a hundred percent solution. I'm a retired Goldman partner. I am super lucky, right? So every company needs to do what they're good at. If, If there's some logical adjacencies, I think Exxon and Oxy, as examples, doing carbon capture and direct air capture, it's at least interesting. We'll see if they can make a business out of it, but it's something they have expertise in. But beyond that, I don't get why people are so obsessed with major oils, in particular, quote, being critical to a transition. What? Why? How? They're not even that important to the oil business. They're barely 5% of supply.
0: Oh, so much. Okay. I do want to push back on a couple of things. So let's try. The first is this idea. Why do critics of the oil and gas industry want the industry to transition away from oil and gas. And I think this comes back to an important point you made earlier, which is the logical fallacy that if you if you stop producing, demand will magically disappear rather than move somewhere else. But there's this other interesting sort of moral argument that the oil and gas companies made the problem and therefore they're somehow responsible for fixing it. I don't think that's fair either, but I think it's important for us to understand and think about. Now, what I would say, however, to your point of innovation, is that oil and gas companies are uniquely positioned to provide decarbonization and energy solutions and energy innovation at scale and with demonstrated skill sets to execute. So I guess I wonder what your thought is about that. And you gave the Oxy and I think you you said Exxon examples, but what do you think about that component? Like, should decarbonization be happening at scale, particularly carbon negative solutions, which I think could be really beneficial to the reality of ongoing oil and gas use? What do you think about the argument that they are best positioned to lead in those spaces and to innovate in those spaces?
1: Let me start with the first part, and I think the second part is really important to spend time on as well, which is they caused the problem, so they should be therefore part of the solution or fix it or go away or whatever the examples are. And I think for people who truly believe that, I actually don't think it's likely we're going to convince them otherwise. I think the question is, is that actually true? And so we can say, yes, combusting oil and gas, which by the way, consumers do and companies do, an oil company actually makes essentially zero products that actually combust oil and gas. So if you want to say auto companies created products that caused the, quote, climate crisis, then I think you could perhaps say that. And same with every other use. That's all clothing manufacturers, including Patagonia, by the way. It's all lipstick manufacturers. It's every hospital. It's every consumer in every industry, in every country across Earth, except for that small portion of people, which is just under a billion who, of course, don't get to use modern energy. Everything we have is based on the growth in the fossil fuel economy. Now we can acknowledge that continuing to combust too much of it could lead to long-term climate concerns. And some people will say, you're understating that, it's nearer term. We can have that debate. They have created significant human benefits. We've had the most robust growth in population in human history. We have the least number of people in poverty than we ever have. To be richer, to use more energy, of which again, 80% of that's gonna be oil, gas, and coal, is a women's rights issue all around the world. You know, and so when people talk about, well, they cause some harm. Yes, there's too much too much CO two in the atmosphere. I can actually accept that. I think you just have to have a car parked in the sun to understand the basic science behind carbon emissions leading to warming. But to say that that's all we're going to talk about, just the negative externalities of combustion, when again, no oil companies created a single product that I'm aware of that actually combusts crude oil and natural gas, is really an absurd framing. That because the oil companies are such poor communicators, they're all engineers. They're all professional managers at this point in time. There is no counter narrative. It's actually a motivation to creating Substack, not to defend oil and gas companies. I'm an equity analyst. I'm trying to make the right call. But it is to actually have energy literacy out there, which is why I'm appreciative of the work you do. It's not actually to be pro or con anything other than we should be supportive. I am supportive of economic development, lifting people out of poverty, and that means energy, and that means sensible energy. I think in terms of how much they should then get into decarbonization technology, you're going to have to see how the technologies develop. I mean, again, what are the technologies that we know can scale today without subsidies that the world's going to use? Now, an example of a way we can be decarbonized today, France has shown it, 75% plus nuclear power, we don't have to use coal or natural gas and be low carbon. But of course, until very recently, that for whatever reason would have been off limits as a discussion point. I don't think oil companies are going to be leaders in nuclear, would be my guess. They tried in the 70s unsuccessfully, but that's an example where clear solution, we undoubtedly have coal growth in the developing world. What can we do to motivate them? Why are we trying to rip up our existing system through the IRA instead of motivating American energy resources, including new technologies, and in particular new technologies, to go to help developing countries develop. In the same way, the S&P 500 is such a dominant stock market index. Because our companies are so global, they help develop the rest of the world. Zoom is used everywhere. Netflix is used everywhere, and all the various products. The same should be true of our energy companies and our new technology companies towards helping China and India develop. Rather than this, we live in Massachusetts, We're climate crisis diehards. We're not going to allow Marcellus gas to come across the border. It's absurd. And instead, we're still going to use heating oil. There's just so much that needs to change about this conversation. But the idea that energy companies should go ramp up technologies where we don't know how they work. Why? And forget about our viewpoint. You're telling me China and India are going to develop with billions of people still in poverty, with only new stuff that's untested. Now, they're going to try and minimize their crude imports for sure. They're going to try their hardest to electrify two-wheelers, three-wheelers, and hopefully they avoid our SUV move. What do these countries want? It's not up to us. The colonial era ended a long time ago. It is up to them to decide their own fate. And how do we partner with them to support what their initiatives are, not what we tell them they are?
0: Arjun, I want to argue with you, but I keep getting caught up in how good your arguments are, and then I get swept away. So I want to observe for our audience what I think is very effective about the way you take these very controversial topics and narrate them as a third party in a way that is um, compelling and effective. And then I want you to tell me if you think I got it right. So one, when I, you know, we talk about like who's to blame and I have sat around many a coffee table and bar trying to narrate the role of an oil and gas company to people that say they're the equivalent of wife beaters, right? Like they're the abuser and that the CO2 harm that they have caused means they that like they're just by definition guilty. As an example, how does one work through that in the, just in the reality of a conversation? What I find that you do very effectively is you back up to 30,000 feet, maybe even a hundred, maybe even higher, a mile. And you look at the global landscape and then you narrate the history in a very non-defensive way. And I think there's something for us all to learn about it. I don't think companies could be effective articulating what you're articulating because it just sounds like self interested, defensive narration. But I think the role you play is really important. And there's something for us to learn about how companies do engage and do narrate this by backing up, looking big picture and saying, what are we trying to accomplish here? Do you think that's fair? And do you have any other advice about how you craft your narratives in such a way that I forget what I objected to when when we started?
1: Well, first of all, it's very kind of you to say all that, and I appreciate it. Again, my my training and background is as an equity analyst, and it just bears one second of what that means and how it applies to this. And so, if you have the great analysis on some company and stock, you know, like you really nail some unique aspect of it, but the stock goes down, you lost money. I mean, it's just no one cares about the reasons if you lose money, and so you're just so motivated to try and figure out what is actually going to happen, what are all the things I'm missing, and so let's just say. As a stock market person, you want to be bullish on the next Tesla, not because of climate change, but just because you want to make money. Again, I'm going this from the Wall Street perspective. If hydrogen from renewables is not ready, if it requires the $3 per whatever the heck kilogram subsidy, are you sure those electric lines are really going to scale You spend a lot of time trying to figure out what is actually going to happen, not what do I wish to happen, or what does my ideology tell me uh, should, should happen and so forth. I think the second point would be It is really luxurious for all of us here in America. My parents emigrated from India. I'm born here, born and raised here to debate all this stuff. We're really lucky to be able to do that. I encourage everyone, go land in Mumbai airport and on your way to the Taj Oberoi, which is an awesome hotel, by the way, watch the people with their families in the middle of the highway living their life. I mean, it's the most incredible thing. They got those barely tents, they're burning cow dung and they're like kids playing there. And I probably historically didn't, It was just sort of like, yeah, that's there. Then once you have your own children, I've now got three college-age children. They're like, wow, can you imagine my children playing in the middle of this highway? That is not a defense of the oil and gas industry. It's a defense of economic development. There is zero doubt economic development lifts people out of poverty, and that energy development goes 100% with economic development. So if you are denying people energy, you are denying them progress. That does not excuse externalities. What it acknowledges is the priority is always going to be lifting people out of poverty. And I'm not suggesting there's a single oil executive, that that's their motivator. That's not their job. They're CEOs of oil companies. They're there to make profits for shareholders. I'm not saying they're humanitarians. Not at all. As a Wall Street person, you might be surprised, or at least others listening might be, we generally don't like at least half the management teams out there. This isn't <laughs> about saying these are like warm and fuzzy people. Now, some are. Some of them are really good, decent human beings. There's some companies involved with where, God forbid, my wife and I were to pass away, where I would want them to raise my children. That's how much I admire some of the management teams. And there are other ones where I wouldn't even want to have a beer with them. So it's a wide range, as is true without society. This is, Why are we calling them good or evil? They're neither good nor evil. They're executives of Of private companies. It's not their job to be humanitarians. Humanitarians should be humanitarians, right? And so it's just an insane perspective that I find that the world has. And I guess that's judgmental when I say that. So I'll just apologize. If the focus is on how is the world going to economically develop, it is not up to us. China is free of colonial influence. I find it incredible. My parents are 83, they're both still alive. They were born as subjects of England. They were colonial subjects. Isn't that crazy? My father is a retired dean of Harvard Engineering School. And by the way, they weren't oppressed, just to be clear. They were educated in India. They had good lives. India became independent. There's no sob story with that. I just observed that India used to be colonial within their lifetimes. I find it crazy. And the idea that India is not going to do what's in their interest, and it's true for a lot of Southeast Asia. I think, unfortunately, it's not true of Africa. There's a singular oil pipeline, as I think you know, from Uganda to Tanzania. That a bunch of European environmentalists, and therefore European banks, that you don't get to have a single pipeline. Even though you, Africa, produce 7 million barrels a day and only demand four for 1.4 billion people, tiny fraction of oil use, you don't get to have a singular pipeline because we say so, because we're more concerned about something else. How is that fair? Where's the economic and social justice in that? How can all companies approve? They can clean up their methane. That is their responsibility. I think they could be more pragmatic, oil companies, about being proactive, it should not require a government rule, figure out through the API or the Permian Producers Association or whomever, how to deal with your methane, figure out scope one and keep producing low cost American oil and gas
0: for the benefit of global demand. Arden, my head is spinning because in one narration, you essentially said, let's just be preg- like, let's just look at the money. Let's just be pragmatic. Let's look at this and that And yet you took us on a moral tour of the importance of oil and gas and the importance of fossil fuels in numerous environments. And I think you do so really authentically and speaking from the heart. And so there's just a lot, I think, for us to contemplate and how to be effective communicators in and around these energy issues, because I think it's actually... As you were saying, it's it's just about the money, it's just about being pragmatic, it's just about being analytical, but that's not why you're so effective. You're so effective because of your authentic analysis and conclusions that you convey, I think with a lot of emotion. So I, I don't mean to be doing like communication therapy here with you, but I am trying to unpack what works and what's effective. And also what are the limits of that effectiveness, particularly with speaking with our critics and those hostile to the industry, any reflections back about that? You know,
1: well, first of all, again, thank you. You're being very kind, so thank you very much. But what I will say is I spend a lot of time trying to understand all perspectives on everything. And I mean, and it's not necessarily climate versus oil and gas or anything, but I spent a lot of time with folks who are uh, in the environmental community and I enjoy those interactions. And frankly, when they're at dinner or at a bar or whatever, they're far more enjoyable, frankly, than they are in other sort of public-y kind of settings where people have to stick to their pre-prescribed, you know, talking points and so forth. I spent a lot of time at Columbia's Center on Global Energy Policy, where Jason Bordoff, who I admire and am blessed to work with, he was an advisor to President Obama, so comes a little bit more at it, as I think he'd acknowledge it, as a moderate Democrat. I get so much out of the interaction with people who are particularly passionate about the climate. What I'd say, though, is if you really are passionate about the climate, let me address those folks. The idea that Asia is not going to develop on its own terms, you're living in fantasy if you think that's not going to happen. I mean, the number one most pressing concern is how, what is going to motivate China to stop building no coal plants? How do you motivate nuclear to really displace it? What is going to stop India from not following in China's footsteps? They're going to be less industrial intensive economy, it's going to be more of a service, lots of reasons why India won't follow exactly in China's path, but I want to follow it exactly in China's path to not have a heck of a lot more coal coming in. I actually don't think India is going to import a lot of LNG. I'm not here to say that, oh, gas is the answer, but it's also not exclusionary. It's definitely better than coal. How do you make nuclear part of the mix? How do you motivate? I I think they'll do solar plus coal. Is that really a good outcome from a biodiversity standpoint, as an example? So I actually don't think India as an example. So for people most concerned about climate, you're still going to have to, solve, unless you're in the degrowth camp. And I will say if I stand for one thing that, I'm, that I am morally opposed is the whole degrowth camp. I do not support that at all. It does look like global fertility rates have peaked and are declining in both developed and developing worlds. So some version of that outcome may occur within 50 or 75 years anyway. That frankly Probably is what stops carbon emissions at the end of the day. The fact that populations are naturally slowing in terms of growth, but that's a long term away. To me, you're going to have to start as your grounding. Everyone wants to get richer. I am a capitalist. So to me, social justice means everyone is similarly rich as opposed to socialism, which means everyone's similarly poor. And I am being lighthearted, though also serious. Everyone is similarly rich. How are you going to do that in an environmentally friendly manner for climate's what you concern concerned about? Nucle is going to have to be part of that answer. I mean, come on, right? How are you seriously motivating less coal? Right now, you're going to do all of it. The answer is always you do all of the above. I mean, even Jason Bordoff has a great uh, speech saying, you know, we are still using more wood than we've ever used. This guy, Rob West, talked about the Iron Age ended like in 1300 or something. We're still using more iron than we ever have. We're not using less of anything. This idea that for the next 50 years, we're somehow going to use 70% less oil, while 5.1 billion people in Asia, I'm not even yet getting to the 1.4 billion people in Africa who deserve as much of a chance as anybody, who have not unfortunately broken free of European and probably American influence, which is deeply unfortunate. And they've got other challenges, which are both their own creation and created by the last 500 years of history that is, again, beyond the scope of this podcast. What about them? And that's where a billion more people are coming. What, what about that? You know. So if you care about the climate, if you are concerned about the urgent climate crisis, it's not my language that I prefer to use, but if that's what your concern is, you're still going to have to meet basic energy needs. If you're in the degrowth, I just can't help that perspective. But if you actually care about people improving their livelihoods, how are you doing it? You can't pretend that solar is the cheapest. It is cheap in some instances. It's not cheap in 100%. I'm a retired Goldman partner. I get to drive a Tesla. China can force BYDs on their people. That's not pragmatic for the whole world. It's ridiculous.
0: I think one of the reasons you can narrate so much so effectively, Arjun, is because you're not stuck in any of the orthodoxies around the political narratives around energy and climate. It's just magnetic.
1: Well, I, I appreciate that. I me mean to interrupt you, but I say one of my lines super spike. is I deeply despise partisan politics. <laughs> As an American sort of partisan politics, I think no one will think that I'm a progressive lefty, but there are large parts of right-wing ideology that I really do not care for either. And so there's a need to speak out. It's why I write a substack. And I think people like myself just can't complain about the extremists and not speak when we know something about it. I don't mean, I'm right but at least I know a little bit about energy. So I felt like I had a responsibility to at least talk about it.
0: Well, and I think it's important too, because a lot of supporters of oil and gas don't do oil and gas any favors in the way they try to support oil and gas politically. In fact, I think it undermines our efficacy and our abilities to connect with a broader range of stakeholders by by making oil and gas even more partisan. I good gonna... with you. I'm going to try to pivot to a couple of just practical questions for our audience even though I think we could talk vision and global leadership all day. You serve in many leadership roles in and around the industry and I'm wondering what your advice is to oil and gas companies about where do should they be thinking about climate in terms of risk, in terms of public perception, in terms of decarbonization strategies? How should boards and executive teams be thinking or not thinking about climate? What's the like very brass tacks advice you give about when to engage and where not to engage?
1: So I want to address your specific question because it deserves to be answered, but it's very difficult for me to talk about climate without also talking about the economy. And so it all goes together and I don't think we can always parse these issues out, but so that'd be point number one. And my example is India and LNG. So again, if you're gonna get into the LNG business, And your view is, hey, India's got this booming population that's going to grow up the economic curve. Again, I'll push back and say, why are they importing a bunch of LNG? It's going to be coal plus solar, to me, seems like the most likely outcome, with some gas and some nuclear. Is that a climate debate? Perhaps the solar motivation is climate-y. But frankly, the cool thing about new energies, the cool thing about solar and wind, is once it's up and running, it's a domestic resource. And I think that geopolitical security angle, people say, well, because of Russia, Ukraine, we're going to use more oil and gas. I, I don't Think that's true, actually. We might in the very short term, but frankly, whenever, whenever there's geopolitical turmoil, you're very motivated to what's a domestic resource. And if you don't have a lot of gas and oil, frankly, solar is a much better option, even if it has some challenges. You will work your hardest to overcome the intermittency uh, because once that solar panel is you may have to import the panel from Russia, uh, for, excuse me, from China, other issues with that, but new energies tends to be a domestic resource, so that's a really important consideration for any uh, developing for any developing country. I think the way oil and gas companies can think about climate risk is, listen, I do not take for granted, despite the fact that the Permian base is in, is in Texas, that we will have sensible energy policy. There's plenty of examples where we don't. The state of New York, definitely not. You're not going to import Marcellus gas for what reason? In New York City, they're like banning gas furnaces and steam furnaces, which is ridiculous. There's probably no more energy-efficient bunch than the eight million people that live in Manhattan, all in apartment buildings. Like that's actually they, I what right? So there's plenty of potential for bad energy policy in the name of climate that can negatively impact oil and gas companies, and even something like methane. And this is a critique both of the oil and gas industry and environmentalists this should be a real opportunity for common ground. Because oftentimes, for the first 50% of methane and maybe more, the net cost is going to be pretty de minimis. Uh, Now, there's lots of reasons why, despite that fact, you might take longer to do it, which is another discussion. But the fact that there's so little trust, there's so much demonizing on the part of the environmental movement, and there's so lack of vision on being pragmatic from those right of center on this same issue, you don't solve practical issues. So if you what are the climate issues? The biggest risk is bad policy in your country. It's a big risk. If you're a Canadian producer, are you sure the federal government's going to support your ability to get it out? And we can see it as an investor in the largest companies in Europe, which have been beaten over the head to turn it into quote, international energy companies instead of international oils. And it's so far it's been disastrous for shareholders. maybe not to say it's it's been bad. maybe i'll maybe I'll I'll be calmer and just say it's been bad for shareholders. And every time they pivot away, Shell and BP, the stocks go up, which is a clear sign of should they be doing this or not. So most of the risks around climate are policy driven. And again, if you're in these places that could have, I will call it, I'll be judgmental and call it bad policy. I I think that's your number one risk. Now, there are opportunities in new energies that I think you should study. If you're a gas producer, is there something? In midstream infrastructure or LNG or maybe even renewables and power generation that does match up with you. So I'll give Total, the French oil company, a lot of credit. I really like, and Patrick Pouillonet, I know I probably shouldn't say this, he's just one of my favorite CEOs. I'm just a huge fan of his. I think he's got one of those sensible strategies where we're staring the gas, we're going to combine that with some renewables and provide power solutions to various countries. Like that, I think that's within their core competency. I think they've, so far from what I can tell, are showing some good success. So. New energies is going to grow at a much faster rate than is oil and gas. Oil and gas, I think, will be fortunate to grow at 1% or 2%. I don't think it's going to peak or plateau, but the growth rate's limited. So are there things you can lean into? And I think companies should be studying these things.
0: Oh, that was really, that was really good. Thank you. We have a lot of interest in the emerging generations in the oil and gas industry here at, at Adamantine. And I would love to get your advice for our most recent graduates who are joining the oil and gas industry who under, I think we could all agree, intense pressure not to from their peer groups. (laughs) Even hiring at our firm, we find that candidates are concerned about working in even in consulting in the decarbonization of the oil and gas industry space. And then all the way to millennials who are now reaching their early 40s and becoming leaders of oil and gas companies. What's your advice for our leaders on how to be effective in the in this very polarized world, but where I think they have the best chance of making connections and leading into the future on our behalf? What, 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 what would you say to them?
1: I do think it's a huge challenge. It is a boom bust industry. So if we're coming out of a decade of a huge downturn, and we've had, again, a couple better years, but it was within sort of Russia, Ukraine situation, spiking prices and so forth. And you have folks saying it is evil industry, it's going to go away, especially after 10 years of tough times, and people aren't just going to automatically flock back to it. It's going to be viewed as an old and dying industry. And so this is where I don't think you can change the nature of the existing executive teams. I think you said earlier, which I agreed with, which is it's not clear they're gonna be the best tellers of their story, but that doesn't mean none of them are. So I'm always complimentary of Chris Wright of Liberty, the drilling company. I think he does a very good job. I believe his quote ESG report, which articulates the positive case for energy and then therefore oil and gas is really the gold standard of ESG reports. I think Toby Rice of EQT is a different style but at least is articulating a positive story for American energy going forward. And I think most other executives are kind of older, uh, and therefore, and they're petroleum engineers, and they're introverts, and they're all these kind of things. The industry could use some more personality, and I think it is incumbent upon them. Now, here's an opportunity where I think the cause of diversity, which again, has become, unfortunately, a socially controversial topic for whatever reason. But there are a lot of people all over the world, including in our country, where these can be good-paying jobs. And who doesn't want a good-paying job? So if you're telling... So I think if the idea is that, you know, these elite, wealthy kids from wealthy universities don't want to work in the oil and because They don't have to. And I think it's incumbent upon the oil and gas industry to go to other populations and figure out, how do I ensure that that kind of person is going to feel welcome in one of my companies? A lot of, especially the oil and gas industry, they're mostly Texas and Oklahoma-based. And it seems like there's like six schools. You're in either an Aggie, a Longhorn, a Sooner, I'm going to forget Miner, I'm going to forget a couple of the other. There's not that many they go to. Maybe brought in out. I mean, Is there some reason someone from a historically black college might not want to work in the oil and gas business or maybe someone from Nigeria or India or what have you? I think you're going to want to try and figure out how do you make sure your company does require some vision of the future. The vision of the future is not I'm Paris aligned. I'm sorry, that's not a vision. That's a defensive defeatist slogan. No one is Paris aligned. Disney's not. Apple's not. Microsoft, I'll argue, is making the best effort. They, to me, have done the math on carbon emissions to their credit i think maybe it's because of bill gates legacy and his involvement in his his charity that microsoft seems to be the only company i find that seems to have a, an understanding of what carbon emissions mean but these, these companies need to articulate what their what is their role in meeting the world's energy needs there is some need no oil company has a retail exposure anymore and they're also geographically isolated, especially in America and in Canada. They're all obviously in Calgary for the most part. Very geographically isolated and narrow. They're in their own bubbles, and there isn't a natural need. A tech executive, you're definitely trying to appeal to the public because people want to buy your, you want people to buy your iPhones or your streaming service or what have you. And so there's, there is a lot that needs to evolve with the industry. I would not be super confident, with all apologies, that petroleum engineers who have lived a certain way their whole life are the answer. I do take optimism, especially in my varied role, meeting with some of the younger management teams. I don't mean to dismiss the older ones. Some of them are fine people, but I think articulate articulating the future, I get more excited when I meet. I'm 54 now. It is kind of tough to cross the Rubicon where I'm now older than some of these management teams. That is a shock to the system. But these ones that are in their 40s, they just talk differently. They have different perspectives. They're open to more different ideas. We need to hear from more of them. They don't have to sit there and say why they're humanitarians because they're not. Just tell people what the heck you do and why people want to buy your product, which is oil
0: and gas. Thank you, Arjun. I want to pull on this last question for you, and I want to know a little bit more about you in the question. So you, you could be retired, you could be moving on and continuing to perfect your golf game, as we know you're passionate about, but you decided to throw yourself into the arena here. And, and clearly with just so much heart and so much passion. So I'm wondering if you could talk in, in, in your final response about why you chose to do that in what ways this work is making you optimistic about the future.
1: I'll try not to make this too long of an answer, but I had 20 years on Wall Street, the last 15 of which are Goldman Sachs, the last eight of which I was a partner. And I will give my wife credit for observing. I was 45 at the time that you look pretty burnt out. I was in a director of research management job, which is always a job that kills you on a Wall Street job. And I I actually was eligible for, quote unquote, retirement, meaning the stock vest, you get health care and a few other things as a partner. And I got to cash my kids in middle school and high school, which I will say maybe it's different in the world today. But to someone in their 50s, to have a dad have the opportunity to see their children in middle school and high school, best decision I ever made. It's such a no brainer. I advise everyone to do it if you're so blessed to have enough savings to be able to do that. Now, the kids are now going to college and we've got this crazy new cycle. And to me, just a lot of sort of I'm going to call it bad narrative, especially in America, Canada and Western Europe about climate, energy oil and gas and all these topics which we just spent this time talking about. I will also say one of the upsides of my early retirement at Goldman is I started doing different things. So I'm a senior advisor at a private equity firm, different perspective than publicly traded companies. I'm on the board of a large oil and gas company, as you know, again, different perspective than being an analyst. And I'm on the advisory board at Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy, which while it's nonpartisan by name or intent, It's at a university, it's at an Ivy League institution, the founder worked for President Obama. I find it to be moderate Democrats who love to engage in dialogue and debate. To their credit, they're very welcoming of a range of different viewpoints. And I get so much out of that dialogue and discussion. I was never involved in the policy circles. And I do think policy, which it is, you do tend to be in America, sort of either a Democrat or Republican, there probably isn't too many truly nonpartisan shops. But all of those gave me different experiences that I didn't have if I just sort of stuck with that Wall Street income and that equity research analyst role. It got me to where I am today and we've had this new cycle. I think we have a lot of misinformation, but I did get tired on my text chain where I have like one text chain where it's like my Republican friends uh, who, you know, who are in my town. And then maybe a little bit through Columbia, sort of the Democrat echo chambers. And both groups are just totally talking past each other, right? I mean, the Republican friends, you can just imagine what that text chain is and you can imagine what the Democrat... And so like, like, I don't agree with any of these people, right? And they're all my friends. Or they all are just narrow in their perspective. And I felt like if you have, again, a pragmatic view, not ideological, I do think there is a need for that out there. And you can't just sit on the sidelines and pretend that it's just going to get fixed. Our country is not guaranteed to be successful. We have to fight for it every day. And this is a really small part one can play, which is having better energy policy, but that is to me what motivates me to continue on here.
0: Arjun, I just love getting to spend this time with you. It's interesting because I think we agree on 99% of all the facts, and yet our approaches are really, really different. Mine being more like leaning into that decarbonization climate narrative yours being yours, the one that you've articulated today. And yet, I think somewhere in the tension between those, we can make both of our work better. So I welcome you to always critique my work, always make me better, keep doing what you're doing. It's such an inspiration. And just thank you so much for joining me today on the Energy Thinks podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much. You've been a great host and I very much enjoy your work as well. And when you publish Wall Street research, the best parts of the day is actually the pushback you get. Like when we used to publish these notes and be like, oh, Arjun, you're so smart. It's such a great call. Like, oh, my gosh, we made the wrong call because everyone agrees with me. It can't be right <laughs> if everyone agrees with me. And so it is that debate and discussion which should be encouraged. It should absolutely not be silenced. It should be encouraged is what I thrive off of. So I similarly welcome pushback, critique, commentary and uh, welcome the discussion. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Arjun for taking the time to join me. I found a lot interesting in this, but really the different way that Arjun looks at the same issues that I do, It makes my thinking better and stronger. And I understand after getting to spend time talking to him today, why I enjoy his newsletter so much. He looks at the same issues, similar lens as me, but gosh, really, really different, just different way of processing the same information. So I love it. I think it makes my work stronger. I hope you found this conversation interesting. I'd love to know what you hear. Feel free to reach out to us at energythinks.com. If you like what you're hearing, take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Our, our listeners are growing and they're growing thanks to you. It really helps other people find us. I want to thank my colleague, Lindsay Slaughter, who is making all things podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.